This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. Canada's top CEOs are getting richer. In 2022, they made a staggering 246 times more than the average Canadian worker. And some expert tips on how to achieve your New Year's resolutions. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A former hostage said that while in Hamas captivity, she found strength by singing the music of famous Italian singer Andrea Bocelli. After hearing Yaffa Adar's story, Bocelli wrote a letter to the 85-year-old grandmother expressing his gratitude and inviting her to a public or private concert, all expenses paid. In a letter to the woman, the singing star says there is no award, no applause, No honor or recognition that is worth as much as your words, which I assure you I shall never forget. Adar said that hearing his words is the highlight of her life. Her oldest grandson remains captive in Gaza. Good news in the treatment of skin cancer. A recent study found that an mRNA vaccine against melanoma decreased the risk of spread or death by 62%. It's individually tailored to fight the specific DNA of each person's cancer. Moderna and Merck's new vaccine reduces the chance of relapse or death of skin cancer by half when paired with an immunotherapy drug. Moderna is targeting 2025 availability for the vaccine, and the company has launched additional trials to treat later-stage melanoma and non-small cell lung cancer. This year saw the lowest level of beer consumed in the U.S. in a generation. Industry group Beer Marketers Insights says consumers are shifting away from traditional favorites to other forms of alcohol and, in a growing number of cases, avoiding alcohol altogether. For the first time since 1999, beer shipments were on track to fall below 200 million barrels. After 53 years, Barbara Kramer is still McLovin the Golden Arches in her golden years. At 75, the Florida woman celebrated working at McDonald's for over five decades, first joining the fast food restaurant in 1970. Kramer told colleagues she just loves her job. She's semi-retired and working part-time at a few locations, but has no plans to fully retire in the near future. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Almost $15 million. That's how much 100 of Canada's top CEOs were paid in 2022, an all-time high. And it's more than double what the top executives were paid in 2008. Compare that to the typical Canadian worker who got an average 3% raise to just over 60000 a year. By comparison... The top CEOs made that in eight hours. 
So at a time when the average Canadian is facing food inflation and housing affordability, why do Canada's richest keep getting richer? We reached David McDonald, senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, who released a report this week. Well, before we dig into why this is happening, can you review some of the record bonuses given to Canadian CEOs in 2022? Yeah, so CEOs smashed uh, their all-time high record this year, hitting $14.9 million in uh, average compensation. Uh, this beat out the previous record, which was actually set just last year at $14.3 million. Um, what that means, if you put that in time terms, is that... Uh, CEOs by 927 January 2nd um, would have already made the just over $60,000 that the average worker can expect to make all year, except they did it in a day and, you know, half an hour. And so when we take a look at this uh, ratio, how much more do CEOs make than the average worker? Uh, this year, this ratio is also an all-time high. Uh, they make 246 times more than the average worker this year, you know, closing in now on 250. Um, when we started looking at this in 2008, it was 150. In the 1980s, it was 50. And so what we're seeing here isn't so much that CEOs get paid more than the average worker. They certainly do. They always have. That's not really what's at issue. What's at issue is the gap between what CEOs make and what the average worker makes uh, that has been growing consistently over time. Uh, and by by leaps and bounds, particularly in the last couple of years. So why the steady rise in compensation at a time when inflation is record high, the average Canadian struggling with housing affordability, food inflation, why does this continue to happen? Well, in a sense, it's a bit of a perverse result of inflation. Um, So CEOs aren't paid like regular Canadians. Their salary is relatively unimportant. 8% of their overall compensation comes from a salary. 84% on average of their compensation comes from uh, performance-based compensation or bonuses. Uh, and these bonuses are based on broad measures of company performance, uh, you know, changes in revenue, profits, profit margins, and so on. During the inflationary period, we saw prices increase rapidly. That's what inflation is, increasing prices. Uh, that drove record corporate profits over that period. Uh, as a result of these profits well out of historic norms, huge bonuses were generated for the CEOs. And that's one of the big reasons why we're seeing these big new all-time highs in 2021 and 2022. Inflation drives corporate profits, which drives bonuses. What about times when times are bad? And if it's based on their performance, are they getting less? Yeah, this is a good question. And this is the basis uh, of this merit-based, bonus-based pay is, is if the company does badly, the CEO could make nothing, right? I mean, this is sort of the pitch. Um, in 2020, you could check that because companies did pretty badly in 2020. Um, corporate profits were way down in the first and second quarters of 2020 as a result of sections of the economy being, being shut down. And what was interesting when we lived through that and watched what happened to the bonuses was they didn't go down. So aggregate pay for average pay for CEOs in 2020 was actually slightly higher than it was in 2019, even though corporate performance was terrible that year. And the reason why was that they just changed the bonus formulas after the fact. They went back and revised their own data, revised their own formulas to ensure that uh, the CEOs and the other executives were insulated from the impact of bad news, even when the bonuses go through the roof in good times, which just fundamentally breaks the premise these are merit-based bonuses. In fact, they are power-based bonuses, um, and I think we need to understand them as such. So if Canadians took a pay cut of almost 4%, um, 
last year compared to 2021, uh, it it creates a notion that only some are valued, and it uh, it kind of brews resentment. Well, I mean, this is the issue, is that I think we've come to overestimate the contribution of CEOs to our economy and economic growth and underestimate the contribution of regular frontline workers who also go to work every day and do a good job and have a lot of stress in their jobs. Um, you know, I think this really harkens back to the experience of grocery store workers during the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, we didn't think particularly highly of grocery store workers. You know, I mean, you know, they certainly worked hard. They don't get paid very much. It's not a high prestige job by any stretch of the imagination. And during the pandemic, we learned just how essential frontline workers like that can be. Um, I think that encapsulates in a nutshell um, how we see workers in general as being unimportant to the success of individual companies, unimportant to our economic growth, when quite the opposite is true. They are, in fact, critical. We don't pay them as such, and they don't receive the benefits of uh, corporate growth or economic growth the way CEOs do. And I think that's a mistake. So this report, Canada's New Gilded Age, what else does it find out or reveal about these CEOs? Who are they? What companies do they run? And um, apparently it's mostly males. Yeah, that's right. So it's uh, it's almost entirely men. Uh, there are four women on the list. Um, there, there are, in fact, the same number of men named Mark as women uh, for a piece. And uh, women get paid 63 cents for every dollar a mark gets paid. Um, This is an old boys club. Uh, It's always been an old boys club. There isn't any change in the fact that it's an old boys club. There's always three or four women on the list. It's usually the same women. Um, And so there's nothing here that's changing, despite corporate rhetoric about, uh, you know, gender equality and the general workforce being relatively even in terms of men and women being employed. I mean, not paid the same, but, but you know, in terms of levels of employment. Um, in terms of the sectors, it's not terrifically concentrated in a particular sector. So these are the, you know, these CEOs head uh, uh, the companies where you bank, where you buy your fast food, where you buy your groceries. They run the big oil and mining companies. Uh, you know, these aren't uh, you know, these aren't specialized companies that we're not familiar with. We are, you know, Jane, you go through the list and recognize the names. Um, and so, uh, you know, these are, these are companies we do business with all the time. Um, and when those companies do well, the CEO certainly does well, uh, particularly if they've managed to, to jack up their prices a lot, which they have managed to do over the past couple of years driving inflation. Um, CEOs in those companies argue, you know, we're not responsible for inflation. We're just covering our own costs and then turn around and receive bonuses as if every dime in those increased prices are absolutely of their doing and they should be compensated for it as a result. So to remedy this growing wealth inequality, you have proposed several tax measures. We do remember that in Canada, top marginal tax breaks on the very, or top marginal brackets rather, on the very rich used to be much higher than they are today. Uh, In the 50s and 60s in Canada in the post-war years, they were 70, 80 percent depending on the year. Now we're at about 55% in the big provinces. So taxes have been higher. They could be higher again. Um, And in addition to that, we continue to provide big tax breaks for the richest Canadians who don't need them. Uh, You know, we provide big tax breaks if you're paid in stock auctions. We provide big tax breaks if you make a lot of money from selling your your shares in the company you work for. These folks don't need tax breaks. Uh, You know, they're perfectly capable of paying taxes just like everyone else. Um, Let's cap or rescind these tax breaks. Um, and then the other thing I, th- I think to, to remember too is this is what we're looking for. What we're looking at here is the annual difference. CEOs make fifteen million, regular workers make sixty thousand. Um, run that for five or ten years, 
and the difference in wealth, the you know the accumulation over time of these differences is much larger than the difference in income, which is what this report looks at. And so I think that provides some evidence that uh, we should be looking at a wealth tax. That was David McDonald, senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how to make New Year's resolutions a success. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. We've just said goodbye to 2023 and are a few days into 2024. Do you plan to make changes this year? Experts agree that New Year's resolutions usually fail because they're too big of a goal. So the best advice is start small. In fact, one study finds 9 in 10 Americans fail at resolutions. We reached Jim Davies, a cognitive science professor at Carleton University, for some do's and don'ts when it comes to resolutions. Jim Davies, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Is there evidence to suggest that most of us, in fact, fail to sustain our New Year's resolutions? Uh, I do know that the rates are higher on significant days than on just random days. So if you want to make a change in your life, doing it at a significant time, like at a new year or even a new week, like the beginning of the week, or a birthday or an anniversary, people tend to stick with those a little bit better. Interesting, because it would seem to me that resolutions are more of a tradition of welcoming a new year rather than a genuine need for change. I think that there are a lot of things that people want to change in their life. And if it's a a difficult change, um, sometimes they um, want to postpone when they begin. (laughs) They sort of push that off to the future and, well, when's a decent future date? And then some significant date like a new year uh, often makes sense. So I think that sort of helps resonate with the cultural idea of a New Year's resolution. So we've all heard it takes 21 days to change a habit or for something to become habit forming. But I've also read some experts don't believe this to be the case. Where do you stand on that? I've never found any evidence of any number like that. And the reason is that some habits are very, very easy to start. You know, bad habits like having a sweet coffee in the morning, you know, that can be very rewarding and you can start a habit within two days. And then some other things like difficult exercise or something might take longer. So, you know, repetition does cause habit change, but there's no number of days that applies to equally to all different habits. Why don't we look at some of the top resolutions? First, alcohol. Many now are opting for dry January, but then return to old habits come February. Is there a better approach? In general, if you're going to do something that's very difficult, I recommend that your resolution not be just a cold turkey stop, but a graded slowing down over the course of months. So you might say, okay, for the first, depending on how heavily you drink, let's say you're a very heavy drinker, you might say, I'm only going to have one drink a day for January. And then in February, it's going to be one a week or only on weekends or something. And and so built into the resolution is a nuance about easing into something. Because often if you try to do something very challenging and different right away and try to stick to it, you're more prone to failure. And then people will often throw up their hands and give up on the whole enterprise. So just chipping away at it slowly. Right. And and another thing, like if you're trying to not drink, say, or not eat junk food or something like that is rather than just relying on your willpower, you make a intention to do something different when you get the urge to drink. 
So if you drink when you're hanging around particular friends or at a particular time of day or something, whatever your trigger happens to be, you make part of the resolution, okay, when I, you know, I'm at a bar with my friends and everyone's ordering a round of drinks, I'm going to have chocolate milk or I'm going to do something, you know. So what you want to do is replace the bad habit with a better habit. Mm -hmm. So eventually it gets stronger than the older habit. Gym memberships soar this time of year. You know, after a few months, they tend to taper off again. So how do we set realistic fitness goals? Yeah, fitness, I think, is the same thing. You know, it's one of these things where if you don't do any exercise at all, you know, on January 1st, you go to the gym and, you know, run 10 kilometers, you're probably going to injure yourself. And, you know, your heart rate, changes as you gain fitness. So this is another time when those graded things will be really helpful. So maybe for the first week or two, you just take a walk every day and then, you know, you slowly increase. You know, exercise is also a lot better to stick to when it's social. So if you wanted to go running every morning, you can imagine that it's a lot easier to stay home in the rain if you're all alone. But if you've got three friends banging on your door saying, hey, it's time for your run, you know, there's a lot more encouragement to do that. So we're a few days into 2024. What is your best advice to people who have embarked on this New Year's resolution journey, uh, who are making serious changes in their life, who don't want to sabotage it? I think the two most important things are, first is is self-forgiveness and self-compassion. That change is difficult. Most change that has a lasting effect on your life has to do with changing your habits and how you habitually live day to day not doing one given thing. And habits take time. You know, maybe it's not 21 days, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, depending. But it's not instantaneous. And so if you, you know, in the beginning, you have to use your willpower, you have to use your memory, you have to remember to do these things, and you're going to slip up. And it's very, very important to just say, oh, everyone makes mistakes, it's not a habit yet, but don't give up on it. And, you know, then the habit will take place, and then it will happen without your thinking about it. So I think that self-forgiveness is the number one. And the number two is to try to frame your resolutions in terms of behaviors. So losing weight is not a behavior, for example, right? But, you know, um, staying under a certain calorie limit is, is a behavior. Getting exercise a certain number of times a week is a behavior. So trying to translate your values and goals into concrete behaviors and when you're going to do them and under what conditions you're going to do them, that is that makes it so much more concrete and easier to follow through on, easier to know whether you're succeeding or not, and it will um, ideally lead to the ultimate value that you care about, increased mental health, losing weight, more productivity, whatever it is that you are looking for. Jim Davies, thank you for this. You're very welcome, and good luck to everyone with their resolutions. That was Jim Davies, a cognitive science professor at Carleton University. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. Thanks for joining me today and be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. With technical production by Ian Robertson. Executive producer Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.